Good evening, and thank you so much for joining me at a very difficult time for all of us. But I hope that you find the, the talk tonight to be enjoyable. And I'm going to be looking very much about the future of our oceans uh, and the current problems that are arising from marine pollution. What we can see, of course, is that the pollution that is most apparent is the plastic that we find on the beaches, but all throughout the oceans, we're seeing pollution of different kinds. And yet it's one of the least understood parts of the nine million premature deaths each year that come along with environmental diseases. So what I'm going to try and cover uh, in the lecture is about the evidence of the impacts on marine litter, on, on marine life, but also on human health. I'm going to look at particularly microplastics and nanoplastics, because I'm sure a lot of you have read about that. And then I want to talk about where the greatest risks are, where they're coming from. Where do all the plastics come from? What can we do to actually alleviate those problems and look at some citizen science initiatives and then really just look at the main drivers of the problem and ask ourselves, what can we do about them? And in that, I'm going to include things like the myths of biodegradability, some of the market failures and our own consumer fetishisms, um, because that plays a really important part. When we look at the world today, as I said, one of the most pervasive forms of litter and pollution is plastics. And in fact, it's even become called, become known as the plastosphere. So we find plastics, debris and litter all over, whether it's on the coastlines of small islands in remote parts of the Atlantic and the Pacific, in sea ice, along the seafloor, even in the deepest hadal parts of our oceans, we find plastics. And in fact, we would almost say that the plastosphere is the signature of our times. Now, nearly all of these plastics and marine litter originate from uh, land-based sources, although there is some obviously coming from coastal areas, fisheries, for example, and shipping, maybe even up to 20%. The problem with it is that it accumulates in the oceans and it becomes, in a sense, a pollution that goes without borders. It sits outside of national jurisdictions and causes all kinds of issues. Now, the range of impacts are enormous. Um, many of you will have seen really iconic pictures. For example, um, not only beaches smothered, but also coral reefs where we have plastic sheeting and plastic bags landing on them. Um, and what that does is it deprives the, the coral reef of oxygen and light. You see pictures of birds being entangled, fish, migratory species like turtles. So what you see in, in many places are birds making nests out of those plastics. Sometimes you see seals with, with sort of plastic chokers around their necks. Um, you may even see turtles like the one here, which is picking up rubbish, mistaking it in effect for food. Now, one of the problems that turtles have is that they can't regurgitate as part of their physiology. So once these materials are actually inside their body, inside their stomachs, then in many cases they feel full, they don't feel hungry. But of course they can derive no energy from all of this plastic that's sitting inside their bodies. And gradually they'll starve to death. What we also see is ingestion by microplastics, uh, my, ingestion of microplastics into plankton, shellfish, and I'll talk a little bit later about that. But literally every part of the marine fauna is picking up plastics in many different forms. Now, what we say is that most of it is coming from land-based sources. 
So what are these? Well, first of all, it enters in through mismanaged waste. Um, and you'll see in the picture here, the rivers, the major rivers of the world where plastics are delivered. And it's using estimates of how many people are living in those coastal areas that we've been able to think about how much is actually entering into the oceans every year. And we've got estimates of somewhere in the region of between one and 12 million metric tons. And these lines have been sorted out and more analyses have been done. So you could imagine somewhere in that region, about 12, 13 million metric tons of plastic coming into the oceans through the major rivers each year. Where does it go and how much is there? Well, this is a much harder number. So there have been a few estimates that have been put on the table. Most recently, there's been a discussion around somewhere between 75 and 150 million tonnes. Now, that might sound like a great deal. A million, a, a metric tonne of plastic would fill the lecture theatre um, simply one time. So if you've got 150 million of those, that doesn't sound like a great deal. And particularly when you think about uh, how much plastic we're producing, which is 9,200 million metric tons having been produced since the 1950s, but about 400 million every year. But essentially, if we had that much going in each year, 150 million, it's about a quarter. Nevertheless, we think that there are quite a few million metric tons missing. And we have to ask the question about well, where are they? Which pathways are they sitting in? And where are they going to end up? Well, one place that they end up in is, in fact, in these large, large ocean gyres, the garbage patches, as many of you may have heard. And they get there because of the ocean gyres and the ocean circulation. And once they accumulate, many times the kinds of plastics that are there stay there for a very long time. In fact, one of the latest pieces of evidence is that some of those plastic gyres contain polystyrene and other sorts of plastic that are potentially 15 years and older. Now, what that really looks like is that we're living with plastics that perhaps entered into the ocean in the 1990s. It's sort of mind boggling when you think about it. All that plastic running into the ocean. And yet here we are seeing a lot of it still floating. Now, other ways that things come into the ocean, such as large containers, um, is from ships. But also, if we have massive storms and we're seeing more and more of those, then, of course, that will wash huge amounts of debris into the oceans. And that also ends up sometimes in these large gyres, these ocean garbage patches. So they're in every ocean. They're even turning up in the Arctic. So there's a really great website that you can go to. It's called Plastics Adrift. Um, I've got some examples here. And they use a little icon of a plastic duck. And if you touch on a piece of a coastline where you want to see where it's going to end up, what it runs is a simulation using all the models of the ocean circulation, the surface circulation. And it shows you some quite extraordinary journeys that the plastics go on. So you'll see that if you put plastics in in the south of England, it gradually works its way up through the North Sea in about a year then up through the Arctic. And after 10 years, it will have made its way over to the Canadian seaboard all the way down the eastern seaboard of the USA. More worrying are forms of plastic that are coming, say, for example, in Kenya. 
So if you put the duck on the coastline in Kenya, what you see initially is that it, of course, it moves right across the Indian Ocean, builds up on the other side. But gradually, there's leakage down the south, underneath essentially um, uh, the Cape of South Africa, and then up into the Atlantic and gradually disperses there. So it has a journey that goes all the way down through the Antarctic and then up. And what's really worrying is if you were to start on the west coasts of Africa, where in principle there aren't so many uh, large conurbations, but nevertheless, if you went to, for example, Nigeria or some of the others, all of that plastic ends up in the Caribbean. So the Caribbean is the receptor for potentially waste that's coming from all around the world. So much so that some researchers who went out to a very remote island, Henderson Island, in the Pacific, discovered that there was the highest density ever recorded on any beach on this tiny remote island. So it just shows you that these things happen. Now, the time that sometimes occurs and lapses between um, entry into the water and there can be as little as a year, but it can also take many, many others. So there's these differing time frames. And then if we think about um, those estimates and how plastics are moving around the oceans, then it's clear that as the plastics are moving and they're breaking up and they're fragmenting, then they're going to be falling through the water column down into the sedimentary layers. And that's where, of course, ultimately most of the plastics end up. So nearly half of the total mass of the subtropical offshore waters are the macroplastics. These are the thick uh, polyethylene, the polypropylene fragments. But once that starts to break down, it'll all be held either in the water column or down actually in the seafloor. And then in the seafloor, where we think this is obviously the largest reservoir of microplastics, because of course the plastics are breaking up as they go through um, the water column, then this is where they're going to actually create potentially a lot of problems. So if you're near the shore, plastics will wash up, be dumped on the, on the beach, wash out, be dumped on the beach, and so forth. So if you look at coastal surveys and what's on the beach, then you'll find lots of objects that have only been there for about five years, because there's an enormous amount of fragmentation and abrasion and physical forces. And that's why when you do beach surveys, um, you'll find a lot of tiny, tiny fragments, as well as some more robust pieces of plastics and other kinds of pollutants. Now, within the oceans, we talk about a pyramid. It's basically a pollution pyramid. And the pyramid itself is an indication of, in a way, the volumes of things that are going in. So one of the biggest concerns we have in pollution is what's coming from agriculture. Those are nitrates coming from fertilizers, there's phosphorus. There's a whole range of things that come in through the agricultural pathways. Uh, the pesticides as well. Now, they have an enormous range of impacts. So, for example, they can end up creating harmful algal blooms. Um, they can carry actual toxic chemicals with them. And they can even create life-threatening bacterial communities to spread. Pesticides, on the other hand, will kill fish. And they can also cause human infertility. So between the two of them, they're actually doing a great deal of harm to the marine life and to, marine, to the marine community. Now, over and above that, 
we have a new addition to the pollution range, and that is, ironically, something that's been put up by industry to reduce the amount of uh, fertilizer and pesticides being applied by nanoizing the container, the sort of the pellet in which these are sprayed onto fields. So on the one hand, the argument goes that if we're much more precise and discreet about the delivery, then those particular things, the pesticides and the fertilizers, are going to enter into the plant and, of course, enter into the soil. Well, that's all very well and good if all you were worried about was agriculture, and even that might be a great concern. But intentionally um, added nanoplasticized pellets have, they're like a kind of time bomb that's going to go off because once they get out into, let's say, the freshwater systems and the marine environment, well, of course, their very aim is to penetrate living flesh and tissues. So they'll get taken up. And that nanoized form is a type of threat and pollutant to human health that we don't know so much about. So this is why the European Union, for example, has moved ahead on actually looking from the chemicals agency uh, for legislation that will actually ban or at least remove nanoized entry of these um, inputs into agriculture. Now, we also have a lot of legacy chemicals that are sitting around. I, I've talked about that in previous lectures. And those chemicals also then leach into the environment. Now, we've got rivers taking a lot of materials in, but we've also got airborne and atmospheric pollution coming in. Now, we've got mercury, a whole bunch of heavy metals, and other things that will aerosolize. And then at the same time as pollutants are moving around in the ocean through the surface currents, we have atmospheric currents, so to speak, and winds moving over long range, these emissions of essentially toxic chemicals. And this is why we find both accumulating levels of microplastics, as well as really nasty things like um, methylmercury appearing in the Arctic. So recent work has shown that sea ice contains almost as much microplastic content as you find in the snows in the heart of Europe. Every single breath you're taking, every single thing that we do, we are actually in contact with microplastics. And a large volume of microplastics that come into the oceans actually comes from transport, from our cars and the tires on roads, which aerosolize small particles. and They contain microplastics, which get taken up into the atmosphere. And if they're not too heavy, they can be transported over long distances. Okay, over and above that, as if that wasn't enough, we then have oil spills and plastics themselves. So all of this background serves to tell us that we have an accumulating burden of, let's say, contaminants. And that then opens the door for quite a number of um, different sorts of organisms that can genuinely hurt and harm both human health, but also um, uh, the marine organisms. So we don't actually have organisms coming in to what we might call a vacant space. However, organisms such as vibrios and bacteria are very happy to catch a ride, so to speak, on this floating plastic. And one of the challenges more and more is that we have 
on the floating microplastics in particular, an ability for biofilms to create a very nice home, a niche for all kinds of different bacteria. And bacteria get, so to speak, attracted to these microplastics, these small plastic fragments, and create little colonies. And through that, we can see from plastics alone that we get outbreaks of things such as vibrios. Now, vibrios are life-threatening. Um, they can cause terrible um, sort of human suffering. If you see the pictures, you can actually look at large corpuscles and bacterial infections taking over. So floating plastics create this enormous wealth of um, habitats that can be colonized by all kinds of opportunistic species. And what's really interesting is that when we look at the bacterial colonies on these floating plastics, we find a completely different set of species than in the water around. So it's as if they're scavenging for space and using it to go on. The other thing, unfortunately, that microplastics uh, have thrown up is that as they break up, they then start to leach chemicals. Now, you might think the plastics are inert, but it turns out that when we're manufacturing plastics, up to 14% of the volume can be made of toxic chemicals. On the understanding that if plastics are dealt with properly, in other words, they're either retained or put into landfill or properly disposed of, those chemicals will never have an opportunity to get into the environment. But if I tell you nearly 50% of waste on land is mismanaged and will eventually find its way into the oceans, then it's pretty obvious that all those additives are going to find their way also into the oceans. And we're talking about some really nasty things, things that actually have been banned. DDT, bisphenol A, these are the sorts of chemicals that I'm sure many of you will have thought or read and know about that you don't particularly want to have in your diets. So our real challenge is that we don't really understand how many of these particular items break down once they hit the environment. And even if they do start to break down, we don't know in which way the chemicals themselves will start to interact. In fact, what we do understand is that the physical abrasion is one thing, but there's also exposure to sunlight, to UV, in other words, in the sunlight. But within the context of the microplastic world, we've also got microfibers that come from washing our clothes. There's all kinds of microplastics that come in from uh, pharmaceuticals, from our personal health care, for example. And all of these behave in completely different ways, depending on their buoyancy, on the particular additives and chemicals and the kind of polymer that was in there. Um, if you think about fishing nets, many of them are also plastic. The ropes, the buoys, um, all the kind of paraphernalia that go around packaging, all of these will behave in very different ways when they get actually into the marine environment. So in many senses, we think about microplastics in the same way as we think about particulates and air quality, which we will have read a lot about uh, in recent times, about how, how clean the air is becoming. One thing we were always worried about was this thing called PM 2.5, the particulate matter. The reason we call it that is because essentially it's like a sticky mass in which you can find any number of rather nasty toxic chemicals, as well as bound into that uh, things like dust and organic matter. Well, in the same way, microplastics are like the ocean PM 2.5. 
And you don't want to have too much of that around, that's for certain. So depending on the size and the shape and the polymers, all of these different aspects will determine what happens to those microplastics and nanoplastics once they get into the environment. But there's a warning here because, as I say, many of the chemicals that are then going to leach out are ones which we fully understand have got long-term impacts for our health. Now, having got our plastic, so to speak, into the ocean or along the beach, we then see that a lot of them live for a very long time. So we can see that even toothbrushes might live for a hundred years, more than a hundred years, out in the ocean if they just settle onto the bottom. Um, if they are not broken down necessarily by physical abrasion and the bacterial communities are not set up, then they may not break down, as I say, for a very long time. So some plastic bags have been estimated to last 20 years. Um, we've got plastic cups, 30 years. We've got different containers that might last for, as I say, many hundreds of years. And the, the plastic um, pieces that you put around bottles and cans, they can also la last for a very, very long time. Now, the human health impacts are multiple. And how does that happen? Well, it happens primarily through ingestion. So you would think, well, we don't eat that much or we don't come into that much contact with seawater. But even if you just simply eat a shellfish, the shellfish itself is something that is unlikely to uh, be able to disgorge all of the microplastics. So even if you clean mussels, you clean clams from the innards, so to speak, of the stomach. Actually, by the time they're brought to shore, many of those shellfish will have absorbed microplastics into the tissues. So when you eat the shellfish whole, you essentially will be consuming quite large quantities of microplastics and all of the additives and all the chemicals that go with it. Now, we see that in marine life. Um, of, there's about 800 species of birds that have been documented as having ingested plastics. And in many cases, up to 95% of every sample of bird has got microplastics or plastics in it, in its stomach. So <clears throat> when we eat, we're sort of at the end of the food chain. And being at the end of the food chain means that in some cases, those particular things, those chemicals and plastics, have actually started to accumulate. Now, we don't have evidence that plastics accumulate per se. We do know that toxic and heavy metals can accumulate, certainly in marine mammals. So people living in the north in the Arctic who eat seals and whales and other kinds of food can and are at danger of having too much uh, of heavy metals. Nevertheless, um, all of the other types of inputs that come in through that uh, route can affect us. So these poorly defined mixtures of chemicals, including PCBs, DDT and others, can eventually come into the diet of coastal communities. The worrying part about that is that we've got billions of people who rely on fish as their main source of protein. All the coastal communities, particularly in Asia, are heavily dependent on fish. And if you remember the map where we show how many uh, tons are coming in through the rivers, it is the, the rivers in Asia that are actually polluted the most, particularly with plastics. So the heavy volumes of waste coming into the oceans are coincidental with very high densities of people. Now, as those plastics have come into the world, you would expect that they had been tested. 
but unfortunately, most of them have never been tested in real-life conditions. So I'll come back to that in a moment. But let me just complete the story about the impacts at a sort of industrial scale. So you can imagine um, that, obviously, carriers and containers of some of these microplastics might accidentally go overboard or be lost. And it's certainly clear that microplastics in the form of nurdles, as we call them, or pellets, um, certainly there's a, a quite a high percentage of plastics in those forms that make their way into the environment through accidents. Um, containers going overboard, uh, vehicles having accidents. But at the same time, and remember I talk about plastic litter being part of the marine debris and all of the pollution that's going in, we do know that coastal and maritime industries are increasingly affected by that. So sometimes you can have catastrophic loss of ships. Um, there haven't been so many, fortunately, but when they do, they create enormous amounts of debris and plastics that then go out into the oceans. And ships are particularly vulnerable to collision with plastic uh, objects, entanglement of floating objects in their propeller blades, um, the clogging of the water intakes for engine cooling systems. This is all about downtime and maintenance costs. And port facilities themselves are also at risk of damage because these will also cause delays and they have to clean up the, the waterways as well. So it's been estimated in the Mediterranean alone that these kinds of losses can be as much as 150, 130, 150 million dollars um, a year. So that multiplied all around the world gives you some idea of the costs to shipping. And there's been a few estimates, but overall, um, we can see that just for shipping alone in the Asia Pacific area, which is a big heavy shipping place, um, they estimate the costs to the marine economy of $10.8 billion. So that's an enormous amount of money being spent on damage caused by plastic debris. Um, I'm going to sort of put a number in front of you, uh, which is, as I would say, it's, these are all sort of estimates that we've had to come to, because there's never really been a full um, costing of the damages caused by plastics. But if we think about the damage to ecosystem services, the ability to absorb oxygen, uh, which basically helps the climate operate, the ability to sequester all kinds of nasty things, um, internalizing all of those costs and allowing us then to think about what plastics are doing in terms of damage or not allowing us to receive the benefits, what we come up to is a figure that uh, essentially tells us that plastics alone are costing us 500 to 2,500 billion dollars annual losses. 500 to 2,500 billion dollar losses. And that's only saying that we are damaging the marine ecosystem to 5%. Now, in some places, it's going to be much, much more. The Mediterranean, for example, particularly in closed areas. So you can imagine that if we were to do this calculation for real and think about every single part of the ocean, including the seabed and what that means for those little communities, the number could be much larger. What's fascinating is the little anecdotal and pieces of evidence that we're getting from researchers. So if I tell you about lugworms, now lugworms are incredibly important 
turning over the sediments in estuaries. They are, in a sense, the energy source that goes in and makes sure that everything is oxygenated and that everything is functioning well. Now, lugworms, like every other organism around them, start to eat microplastics, thinking that they're actually food. Now, when they get microplastics into their, um, into their stomach, or they don't have a stomach, but into their intestinal uh, system, they actually also can't get any energy. So they become like lazy lugworms. And so the whole sedimentary process, the turnover, the capturing of uh, oxygen, the bacterial communities, and all the other organisms that live and rely on that turnover of the sediments are actually going to be incapacitated. So that's just one small example. And I think if we were to add up all of those ecosystem service effects, I think we would have a much larger number, even than the upper limit of two and a half thousand billion dollars a year. In one study done in Asia, the, it was uh, in Thailand. And actually, when they talked about um, the effects of plastic on, on their lives and, and on the fishing and so on, the local communities essentially said that it was the highest environmental stress in their, in their life and was actually compromising the ability to grow their economy. So overall, um, we think about the maritime industries, which have got enormous value, more than $2 trillion a year. Just losing a small percentage of that could be absolutely significant. So what are we going to, what are we going to do about that? What's driving all of this? Well, the first problem is that we produce an enormous amount of plastics every year. 400 million tonnes doesn't sound like a lot, but it is an enormous amount. Some of it is produced and essentially goes into what we might call a standing stock. Um, but a lot of it, particularly imagine plastics that are going into packaging, single-use plastics, fast foods, things that move through the economy and get used once and then get chucked away. And that's the real challenge for us. So if you imagine since 1950, we have actually created and produced 9,200 million metric tons and what we would say is since all of that has been generated, about 5,300 of that has been discarded. So 7,000 has been of waste, 7,000 million tons of waste has been generated. And of that, 5,300 has been discarded. And it's either gone into managed waste streams, in other words, landfills, which often fail, or it's become literally uncontrolled and has become literally a waste flow out into the environment. So literally plastics are everywhere. And cumulatively, we have put, I could imagine, nearly 3,000, maybe up to 5,300 million metric tons of plastic out into the environment. Now, if you imagine that we're producing a certain amount of mismanaged waste each year, and you come up with a figure of about 100 million metric tons. The question is, where's it all going? And is it all actually running into, into the rivers? And why is it that we're not using a lot of our ability to recycle materials in the context of plastics? Well, here is probably one of the major flaws in the way that plastics are generated. So you'll see, uh, in the image, lots of ways in which sectors are essentially building up their use of plastics. And we use them for all sorts of things, bottles and canisters and packaging and so forth. 
One of the challenges is that the content of that plastic is virtually proprietary. In other words, there's nothing on it that tells you when you buy a product what's in the plastic. Now, there have been a few attempts to look at, for example, microbeads. And there was a QR code where you could go around shops and shine your um, telephone on the, on the product and see what was in it. But on the whole, we really don't know what is in most of the plastic products. And this causes a big problem for recycling, because if you are trying to sort your plastics beyond simple PET bottles or whatever, then you really need to know what those chemical additives are. And when you don't know, it really means that you have no pathway to take those plastics down to. The second sort of source of problems is to do with the myth of replacing many of the plastics with bio-based or biodegradable. And what's working against us is that the price of the virgin feedstock, the oil and gas, is getting cheaper and cheaper. So that it is now cheaper to buy virgin stock than it is to use recycled materials. So there's no incentive to recycle. And even if you want to come into the market with bio-based, then you have the challenge of the land that is used. Now, a very small amount, less than 1% of all plastics produced are bio-based. So we've got a long, long way to go. But even with that, we used many, many million hectares of land. 82 million hectares of land were used to produce that. So we have to ask ourselves, is this a good use of land? I'm just thinking all the time about food. And then there's a very peculiar process that's been happening with us, which is around biodegradability. So there are many myths around biodegradability. We have standards, not so many. Um, these are called ISO standards, and they're supposed to describe the conditions under which biodegradability will occur. Most of them confine themselves to things such as industrial composting. So when you see the word composting, it doesn't mean at the bottom of your garden where you just go and put all the plastic bottles and somehow the bacteria will get to them and they'll all be broken down. No, no, no. Industrial composting is seriously controlled, controlled environmental conditions, right? Now, if you imagine that when you buy a product, you read it and it says, oh, it's biodegradable. Oh, well, that's all right. What we see, unfortunately, is that in some households who are very, very careful, who buy biodegradable products, what they are shown to do is to buy more of them. And this is a, a very well-known paradox. It's called the Jevons paradox, which is that it's the same as if you go and buy, um, you're going to buy a television and you see that it's got an extremely good energy rating. And somehow in your mind, you think, ah, well, then it's OK to buy two. So instead of going and buying one television, you buy two of them. Well, it's exactly the same thing in households that have focused on buying biodegradable materials. Turns out that they buy more materials, more plastics than those who don't. So that's a salutary tale to us. But what researchers are really throwing up is the sad fact that most plastic, biodegradable plastic, ends up in uncontrolled waste. And as a result, it sits in conditions which are, frankly, a long way away from those which will enable it to break down in a good way. And so we can have numbers and numbers of uh, trials and field studies put on the table which show that a biodegradable plastic bag is still there three years later and it has not degraded in any way. And in the sea and in the ocean conditions, once it goes into the dark and into the sediments, 
This is a very, very common feature. So there's very strong evidence now that biodegradable plastics pose exactly the same risks as conventional ones in terms of their uh, fragmentation and the uptake and the way in which they get um, you know, built up into the, into the uh, food chains, how they can alter feeding patterns, metabolic rates, and so on, and even in the end, coming into human health conditions. So this is very disappointing. Um, and one of, the, one of the challenges then is how to move industry into both a much more rigorous um, analysis of what the standards should be, but more crucially, to really think carefully about the volume of plastics that we're using. So only 14% of plastics packaging is recycled. All the rest of it ends up, as I say, in generally in uncontrolled waste. Now, there are other things called degradable, oxo-degradable, oxo-biodegradable, landfill degradable. All of these things, I think, are now on the table and really um, being questioned for their genuine ability to fill the gap. So if we now sort of think about what are we going to do, what are the solutions, we're confronted by quite a lot of market failures. So there's a little, there's a sort of a little piece of me that thinks, you know, this is, this is really crazy. We're talking about a waste hierarchy of, you know, reuse, recycle, reduce what we use and so forth. All of the circular economy, and that's really what we want to focus on. But we have a genuine problem when the feedstock, through the subsidies that are given to the oil and gas industry, are really just pumping this production to a point where it's very hard to beat. And plastics are convenient. They provide often safe and secure conditions for food, for transportation, for medical places. So I think, in a way, going forward, we need to think about the marketplace in, in multiple ways. First of all, we need to really bring the cost back. So the amount of emissions that are given out in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the sheer production of, of uh, plastics is enormous and it is not going down. So this is one area that we need to think of the costs and the price and the disincentive of using virgin feedstocks. The second thing is to create alternatives, of course, but also to think about design, eco design, right at the very beginning so that maybe we can take things apart and reuse them so that we actually keep a lot of these materials in the economy for much, much longer. So the distortions in the price, the lack of internalization of costs, and the ability to have good eco design that creates a way in which we can retain plastics in the, in the stock rather than it becoming loose and out there in the environment. But in the end, um, it's a mixture of poor governance and a lack of uh, alternatives that's really leaving us, in a sense, with a lot of questions as to how to tackle ocean plastics. Because in the end, it's about what we do on land and less about what we do at sea. Now, there are many, many actions. If we think about our rivers and we think about what, how people are living, and you look at what's in those riverbeds and you look at the shoreline and so forth, we know that people are really motivated to go and clean up. I mean, the challenge about cleaning up the beaches is, of course, that on the next tide, it all comes back again. But one of the things that has been possible is that by documenting what's in the beach debris, it has been possible 
to identify those items which are most prolific, contain the most volume and do something about it. Cigarette butts, enormous volumes of plastics within a cigarette butt and trying to find alternatives is one of those areas of innovation that is pushing ahead. Um, balloon sticks, seriously, do we need balloon sticks and balloons made out of plastic? I don't know, seems a bit crazy to me. Um, many other things, obviously uh, plastic bottles, the, the plastic holders to the, the, the things that hold the tin cans together and so on and so forth. So what the European Union was managing to do was to identify 10 top items where they felt we could find alternatives and that they could actually be banned or at least phased out. So that will at least help an enormous amount. Helping fishermen to recover their gear, making it worth their while. Um, these are all different areas that we can work on. And certainly beach cleanups are a really good way to encourage people to understand what's happening in the marine environment and to really push legislation uh, uh, to become more global in thinking because national programs are only so good as a, a kind of short-term device. But working back on land, thinking about rivers, thinking about where all of the plastics source from, investing in good waste infrastructure. Ironically, these are the things that are going to help the oceans. Looking to our own behavior, our own fetishisms about having something bright and shiny and new made out of plastic. These are all questions we have to ask ourselves. So if we add it all up and we think about the costs, it looks something in the order of $3,000 to maybe $30,000 per tonne of plastic. That's the cost to the marine world and to ourselves of every tonne of plastic. That's enormous. And with all of this enthusiasm to help clean up the beaches, help clean up the oceans. It's very important that we actually give a long-term view that we're going to try and control the sources so that this creeping crisis, so it's not an emergency as such, but it is a creeping crisis, is not going to be only focused at how we can harvest plastics at sea, but how we can actually fundamentally change the way we see oceans um, from the land side. And so the, the, I'll leave you with a, a picture which my grandson drew about having fun on a clean and healthy ocean. And there in the corner, you can see a little treasure chest. So I'm saying to you that our treasure is that the water is so clear that we could see the treasure chest from the surface. So thank you very much for your time. I hope you've enjoyed it um, and that you'll be able to uh, maybe replay it at a time when, when you're at more leisure. And please stay safe. And I look forward to seeing you um, in the near future for my last lecture of this series. Thank you so much.